0: You're listening to audio from The Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about The Village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. My name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here of The Village. Uh, Thanks for being here today. Uh, Glad that you guys are all here Um, Like Michael said earlier, I get to kind of continue a sermon series that he kicked off for us last week uh, called Go. Just looking at uh, kind of the nature of evangelism, uh, evangelism and mission in the church and what that looks like uh, played out. Michael uh, started last week but just kind of talking about the gospel uh, itself and our personal responsibility for it. And now this week I get to kind of uh, take the torch and run with it to talking about what it's like uh, to engage our neighbors with the gospel. So uh, that's what I'm going to look at today. Uh, sermon today um, is a little weird for me. I know Michael said that about his last week. I'll say that about mine this week. It feels a little weird hovering around the text a bit, doing some other stuff. I don't know. Uh, we'll see what happens here, but um, I hope that you'll uh, get something out of it. So uh, last week, Pastor Michael gave us a, uh, a definition of evangelism, uh, all right? And it went like this. He said, uh, teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. That was the definition that he gave. Now, right then and there, uh, I know we lost some of you. Some of you checked out because you heard the word teaching Right and, and you assume that uh, that means you have to have some level of expertise uh, right? to sit somebody down and explain to them everything there is to know uh, about Jesus. Or you heard the word persuade uh, and, and you th- immediately thought that uh, you had to be able to answer every single tough question someone might have uh, about the Bible. Um, or that you have to be a, a good speaker, clever enough, so that by the time uh, you ended the conversation, that person would have no choice uh, but to trust in Jesus. Right? That's what some of you were thinking probably when... You heard that definition. So uh, if that describes you, then three quick things, and these aren't going to be on the screens or anything, this is just for you all this morning, is uh, one, if you truly feel like you need to grow in any of those things, right? Your knowledge of the gospel or, uh, or the Bible or tough questions that are in there, then uh, that's not an excuse to not share the gospel, right? Uh, to me, it sounds like you have your work cut out for you for 2021, right? You you get to work on those things. You get to uh, not just grow in that stuff so you can be better equipped for the mission field, but for you yourself to grow uh, in your knowledge and wisdom and enjoy God and the gospel more as you learn about those things. So crack open a book, uh, listen to a podcast, sit down with me or somebody else in the church that loves talking about that kind of stuff. We would love to grow along with you in that. And that's because uh, number two, everyone is called to evangelize. All right? Everybody is called to evangelize. We're called to give good news about Jesus to the people around us. This is the the great commission, right? To make mature and multiply disciples uh, of Jesus. He hasn't called you to something you can't do, but he has called you to do something that you will never do perfectly. All right? I want to say that one more time. Uh, He's not called you to something that you can't do, but he has uh, called you to do something that you will never do perfectly, all right? And that's because of, number three, there, there's no perfect way to tell people about Jesus. But there are a million imperfect ways to tell people about a perfect Jesus, right? Your goal in sharing the gospel is not to do it right, okay? Uh, but to point to the one person who did everything right because you can't. It's not about uh, being or having whatever it is the person in front of you needs at that very moment in time. It's, it's telling them about the one who does. A simpler way to say it is this. Evangelizing your neighbor, uh, it's not about you. All right? Evangelizing your neighbor is not about you. Th- this should be freeing news for us to hear. Evangelism uh, often becomes all about saying the exact right words so we either get the result that that we think that we need or so that we're off the hook if we don't get the result that we think that we need. And that kind of pressure will either lead us to to never share the gospel at all because we're freaked out or it'll lead us to shoving it down people's throats all the time in some weird, awkward, jarring uh, way. So as we consider what it looks like to actually share the gospel with our neighbors this morning. Uh, I want us to see evangelism uh, in a bit of a different light, and this is the the main burden of what we're looking at this morning, is that gospel ministry aims to reveal what's already true about our neighbor's need for the Lord's mercy. All right, that's that's the main burden for uh, our time together, and I would uh, invite you to join us. We're going to read the focal passage one more time. Uh, This morning, we'll be in Luke 10, 25 through 37. Adam, you did a beautiful job, but you know I'm just going to do it one more time. Is that okay? All right. Uh, all right. So we're in Luke chapter 10, looking at 25 through 37. Uh, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Jesus saying, "Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?" Jesus said to him, "What is written in the law? How do you read it?" And he answered, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself." And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. All right, this passage I know is not one when we talk about uh, or think about evangelism. We we usually don't go there for this because usually we just think about the, the parable itself. It's about loving your neighbor and being nice and kind and helpful and stuff. But but, but there is uh, this parable is just one part of a bigger conversation that, uh, that Jesus is having with this lawyer. And it's a conversation that begins with about as big of a gospel question as you could possibly have. Uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? That's the softball of all evangelism questions. Right? right. That's what you hope people that you want to come to know Jesus. That's what you hope they ask you. Right? So you can enter into that. But Jesus doesn't close the deal right away right uh, or actually ever in this whole text no repent and believe the gospel no sinner's prayer none of that stuff uh, and here he asks him instead two questions one what do you think you have to do to inherit eternal life to earn that and the second is after uh, telling him the parable is is what does earning eternal life look like in real life what's that look like played out what kind of a person gets to earn or inherit eternal life now Jesus could have literally just read the dude's mind right uh, he, he does that sometimes in the scriptures. He uh, hears, knows what's happening in someone's uh, private thoughts, and he addresses them out loud in front of everyone. What? That, that's a terrifying thought, uh, but, but he doesn't do that here. Or Jesus could have just made some assumptions, right, because the guy's a lawyer, and we know how easy it is to make assumptions about lawyers, right? Uh, and so, uh, but, but he doesn't do that. Even though this guy's probably read the scriptures, he knows the legal terms of his arrangement uh, with his relationship with the Lord, but Jesus doesn't do that here and elsewhere. Jesus seems more concerned with drawing out of the other person what they believe to be true and then interacting with them based on what he knows to actually be true. All right, and so I, I want to talk about this more. This is the first point uh, this morning. While it's shorter than the others, it does tee up uh, the next two for this morning. The first point is this, that gospel ministry is about revealing what's already true. Gospel ministry is about revealing what's already true. Here at The Village, we, uh, we often summarize the story of, uh, like the, of the Bible, the story arc of the scriptures, by talking about creation, fall, redemption and a new creation, right? God made everything good uh, and right and orderly. It was perfect. Uh, We sinned and we brought death and disorder into that. That's that's the fall. And then God redeemed us uh, in Christ through his life and his death and his resurrection. That was the plan all along. That's our redemption. And one day he will return uh, one more time to set all things right in heaven and on earth. That is the new creation. Here's the thing, right? And that Big picture story arc of the Bible. There, there's not a neighbor that you know who doesn't already live in light of creation and the fall. They are fallen creation, right? That they have a sense of of purpose in some way. That they have a, a sense that they are meant to have worth. Or, or value, that uh, they're meant to be loved in some way. They have an inner sense of right and wrong. They, they know the world is not as it should be. They know that they are not as they should be. Work is sometimes unfruitful. Raising kids is harder than it feels like uh, it should be. Guilt and shame and fear and all those things have played a part in our lives. 2020 was a thing, right? right? We know things are not as they should be. Death is inescapable. Everybody longs. For something or someone to set it all right. There's not a person you meet who isn't waiting for something that will make their life better or make their life more complete, or uh, if they think they've already found it, that um, they're hanging on to it, wanting to keep it, afraid uh, what might happen if they lose it and their life is revolving around it uh, in some way. Everyone has a picture in their head of what a world set right would look like, right? Even if it's just a better afternoon or a better home life or a better career, uh, or maybe a better country, right? Uh, and right now, they're, they're either looking with hope to something that can't actually deliver what they think they really need, or they're living in despair, believing that, that the help that they need will never really come. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. This is already in your neighbors. Your, your, most, your most atheistic neighbor uh, your most spiritual, religious neighbor, your most spiritually apathetic neighbor. Uh, not the gospel itself. It's not in there, but a knockoff version of God's story. Uh, that's what they're telling themselves in their own words. That's a story that they're living in, and they don't even know it, right? And so when it comes to teaching the gospel to people, we're not starting with blank slates in front of us, all right? We're not starting from scratch, and that is, uh, th- that's one thing for us. It's one thing for us to see that in them, to see that they're not blank slates, to see that they're living in that story, but it's another thing for them to see it in themselves, which is, to be fair, the whole point of evangelism, right? It's The whole point of sharing the gospel is for them to see it. You might be a, a gospel wizard, all right, and be able to see uh, the, the need that people have for Jesus in every little way before they even open up their mouths or say anything, but, but they're the ones who have to believe it, right? Not, not you, but a, a freeing comforting thing is that while they don't maybe believe in a biblical worldview at all they live in a biblical world whether they know it or want to believe it or not and so one of the ways that we get to help them see that for themselves is is what it's to ask them questions since you can't read minds like Jesus this is kind of what you're stuck with all right is asking questions why is this lawyer asking me about eternal life Eternal life where? Earn it from from who, how, right? Tell me more about uh, what you think about this stuff. Draw out what your neighbor already believes to be true about the world, right? About themselves, about what they think God is like or what he expects uh, of them. And then you don't have to guess or assume what they believe or just hope that a a generic, like impersonal gospel presentation is somehow relevant to them. Nothing is more relevant to them than the gospel. Nothing is more relevant to them. It's deeply personal, and we get to show them how deep the rabbit hole really goes, what their worth really is, what they were really made for, how off the rails they and the rest of the world have actually really gone uh, in sin, and how someone has already gone out of their way at their own expense, their own initiative to rescue and redeem, and one day restore them and all of creation. And sometimes those conversations start with, "With hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And sometimes those questions start with, can I talk to you about like the bad day I just had? So if, if you're a Christian in, in the room this morning, you get to teach the gospel to real souls already living in the shadow of the way things are supposed to be. Longing for rescue. The, the gospel is already true. Our neighbors already have a need for it. We simply get to peel back the layers and help them see their need for right. it themselves. And we, we do that with an aim to persuade. Not because we are persuasive, but because God is. In evangelism, God gets to be the most persuasive thing that you put before your neighbor, not, not us. He is the one who has drawn near, right? He is the one who has become like your neighbor in their weakness. He is the one Who's become like them in their temptation, uh, in their sickness, in their suffering, in their anger, in their grief, in their everyday life, and even in their death. Evangelism isn't about you. It's about drawing people to Christ. And so it's, it's him we get to lift up, imperfectly telling his true and better story, that they might see their need for his mercy Gospel ministry to our neighbors is about revealing what's already true, both, both what our neighbors already think is true about themselves and what actually already is true, right, uh, about them and about the Lord. And when we do this, uh, we're also going to uncover some, some tension, all right? We're going to reveal some, some tension, both uh, in our neighbors and also in ourselves as well. And this is the second point, that gospel ministry reveals a tension that is already there. All right. So my first experience sharing the gospel uh, was in a, a county prison in Indianapolis, Indiana, um, actually the day after I became a Christian. All right. Uh, I, was a, I was a junior in college and I had tricked myself uh, and my future wife, uh, Kelly, into believing I really was a Christian. And that's a very long story. I won't go into it. But uh, we were in Indianapolis for a Christmas conference with Crew uh, Campus Ministry. And for some reason... I felt drawn to be one of 40 guys who were going to uh, share the gospel with men in, in the nearby correctional facility. And so uh, I, I never shared the gospel with anyone, partially because I didn't believe it myself yet, uh, but that didn't stop me from wanting to be good at it, right? To go and to, to nail it. Uh, and so I was nervous, right? I, I, I wanted to look good. I wanted to get it right. I wanted to prove uh, that I was a Christian who knew what he was talking about. I could hang with these guys, right, these are the 30, 39 men, uh, and so I, I took the envelope with these uh, gospel tracks that were in it um, that they had given me, and I, I began practicing, right, sharing the gospel, uh, and I literally evangelized myself into believing the gospel alone in a hotel room on Thursday night, December 29th, 2005, right, and suddenly I was super excited to go to the county prison. If you know me, the way I came to know Jesus makes absolutely perfect sense, all right, um, <laughs> But, but morning came, and I was nervous again. I was nervous. I, I walked to the prison, and I was nervous. I sat down at the prison. I was nervous. Uh, watching, no joke, a, a puppet show and a magic show with grown men in a prison, that made me nervous. All right? That made me nervous. Uh, before we talked about Jesus, the, the zeal was still sort of there, but it had been kind of wrung out a bit by, uh, by a tension that was there. I'm going to lose my microphone. Uh, and to be clear, that tension that I was feeling, uh, it was not, I promise you, birthed out of a compassion or a concern for the people that I was supposed to be ministering to uh, that morning. It was, it was a tension born out of concern for me looking like an idiot. All right, Th- That's where that tension was coming from. Uh, when Jesus asks the lawyer what he thinks the Bible says about inheriting eternal life, the lawyer responds with the great commandments. Love the Lord with all your mind, heart, soul, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You're right, Jesus says. Do this and you will live. Now Jesus knows that while that's true uh, in theory, like this, this guy can't actually do that, right? Jesus knows that he's the only one who can do that. That's the whole reason Jesus came in the first place, right? We can't keep these commandments, right we can't earn eternal life someone has to go and earn it for us and then give it to us and this is the gospel right not do this and you will live but you will live right now you get to do this that's the gospel right just end the sermon there that's it right but but jesus knows that that like all of us in the room the lawyer's default is to live by the law to prove himself to not look like an idiot right like I wanted to. And so he lets the lawyer sit under the weight of living that way. Sure, right? Uh, if you can do that, go for it. And the lawyer starts to sweat a little bit. And so he asks one more question. And this is a key line. I, I want you to see how what he thinks about his justification, uh, how that's directly tied to the way he loves and sees his neighbor, all right? Uh, but, but the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, "'And who is my neighbor?' First of all, that's a question that the scriptures have already answered, right? Uh, Leviticus 19 says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, all right? So neighbors are those amongst our own people. But uh, he he continues, uh, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. That's what the Lord says. So your neighbor, not just according to Jesus or New Testament stuff, but Old Testament stuff, according to the law, it's anybody who happens to sojourn in this life alongside of you. Your, your literal next-door neighbor, your Co workers, right? Your teammates or your coach, or uh, if you are a coach, the people that that you do coach, your barista, your bagger at Costco, right? Anybody that you happen to encounter, uh, that you sojourn with in this life, they are your neighbor. Not just the people you go to specifically do ministry to or with, but anybody that you happen to to sojourn with uh, in this life. We're called to love them as we love ourselves. And to be clear, not because we are like fundamentally different than them or better than them in some way, but because we are exactly like them in more ways than we care to admit. God's people were strangers in the land of Egypt. So they were called to love strangers as themselves. And today we are strangers in this wild place called America, right? And so so we're also called to see our fellow strangers here, uh, sojourners here, as neighbors. And love them like we love ourselves, which is easier said than done sometimes, right? But Jesus doesn't quote Leviticus. That's not how he answers the question. Uh, First, because Jesus is mindful that this is not about him uh, giving the right answer, right? Despite the lawyer teeing it up in the first place as a test right to try to test jesus jesus ain't playing that game for jesus it's about the lawyer maybe seeing himself rightly for once and second that's it's not what the lawyer is really asking it's it's not the question behind the question because what what the lawyer is really asking when he says who is my neighbor is this which people do i have to love in order to inherit eternal life and more importantly which people can i get away with not loving And still be in God's good graces. Look, the lawyer in this text is is not driven by love. He's not. He's not driven by love. He's driven to earn love. And when we're out to earn love, to earn eternal life, to justify ourselves, we end up not loving the Lord or our neighbor at all. But instead we use our neighbors to get God to love us. Right? I really wanted to nail it with those inmates Right? in the prison in Indianapolis, not only because I wanted them to know Jesus, that was sort of there, but because I, I really wanted to prove myself. Right? When I saw them, I wasn't seeing a fellow stranger or a sojourner in this world with me. They couldn't seem farther away from me, right, more different than me. Uh, but, but I didn't see them as somebody who was just like me, who needed that same gospel. I was seeing them as an opportunity, right? an asset or a liability To my newfound legitness as a Christian. That's how I saw them. When when we believe that we have to justify ourselves, then, then we'll have just as much concern for our neighbor as they are useful in making us feel like good, competent Christians whose faith is strong and whose salvation is secure. When we have to justify ourselves, we will objectify our neighbors. And the Lord wants to squeeze this out of us, He really does. Uh, after that experience at the prison, I made the mistake of bragging to Kelly uh, over coffee in downtown Indianapolis. Uh, she could tell you some stories, man, about uh, how much I enjoyed sharing the gospel that day, all right? Uh, and I've, I've never heard the Lord speak audibly to me at all in any way, shape, or form, but I, I felt him press me and, and say something to me in some way that went along the lines of like, okay, prove it. that's what it sounded like. There was this guy all of a sudden who had a guitar in the coffee shop who was talking with somebody else about, I think it was the Da Vinci Code, right, book, movie, or whatever that was popular at the time, that kind of conspiracy theorized uh, Jesus and Christianity and all that stuff, and suddenly I was mentally freaking out for several minutes at our table because I was pretty sure that God wanted me to to go talk to that guy about Jesus, and I was nervous. Again, I was nervous. I, I wasn't even thinking about him. I wasn't thinking about the Lord, I was thinking about what I was going to say, how I was going to look. Should I read that extra gospel tract that I had packed in my pocket, or should I just like hand it to him and like walk away? What's that look like? How do I start this conversation? How do I get out of this conversation once I start it? What does that look like? And the Holy Spirit, in his kindness, was calling my bluff. Yeah, Scott, okay. Like, do this, and you'll live. Go for it. Tell me realize that I can't. I can't live by that. Guys, you're, you're going to feel this tension when you try talking to people about Jesus. Right? Some of you already have. And it's, it's absolutely the Spirit revealing what you think is true about yourself. The kind of story that you think that you're living in. The one where you have to justify yourself. And the Spirit, when he reveals that tension, he's reminding you that you're not resting in the gospel that you're about to share. You aren't enough, all right? But Jesus is and he has already justified you, all right? What if you could go into gospel conversations with nothing to prove, without needing to make something happen, without being focused on on all that you lack or all that you don't know or all that you can't plan for? What if I could preach a sermon without thinking those same things, just like this morning? And if those of us who already believe the gospel feel that tension, then we can expect it to show up in our neighbors as well evangelism is is not usually these nice neat little uh conversations wrapped up with a a gospel bow um you may not blow anyone's mind right with with spiritual breakthroughs or anything like that in fact you might end a spiritual conversation with the person unresolved confused feeling more tension than when you actually began and you know what that is not a threat to how pleased God is with you How your neighbors feel after your conversation is is not the grade that you get on God's report card, all right? Uh, it's, It's normal. Sometimes it's necessary, and it is exactly how Jesus tries to end this conversation with the lawyer, not once but twice, unresolved. Jesus lets the lawyer sit under the weight of trying to justify himself. Now, look, I'm not suggesting that you don't preach the gospel to people, all right? Preach the gospel, but but don't be afraid of letting your neighbors feel the weight of what they really believe about who they have to be or what they have to do in order to earn eternal life or to get whatever it is they think that they need. In fact, go with them there, right? Ask them, what's the worst thing that could happen? (laughs) What's this better version of yourself that you think you need to be? What if you can't do this thing you think you need to do? What's that mean for you? What if that thing you're banking on, what if that doesn't pan out for you? Where does that leave you? Let them describe for themselves out loud the end of the law that they're trying to live under. Right? Let them spell out how the thing they're placing their hope in might actually fail them in some way. And just know that if the Spirit brings that to light, sometimes, sometimes there's immediate relief and there's light bulb moments. And the, oh, great. But lots of times, more often than not, there's just tension, <laughs> it's friction, struggle, confusion. I don't know what to do or what this means about me. Right? And look, that's not your fault. That tension exists because of the fall, because of sin and suffering and unbelief and all those things. That's not on you. That tension already exists inside of your neighbor. You're not creating it. You're just shining a light on it. You're drawing it out. It's the tension between their true gospel need and how they're going about trying to fill it with the world. You can't preach the gospel too early to somebody, all right? And yet there is something to be said for someone realizing that the way they've been living what they're believing it's not working something is off right it's demanding too much not delivering what it what it said it was going to promise and that's what idols do but but the law when it starts to taste bitter it does make us long for something sweet and people, without ever realizing it, uh, they develop an appetite for the things of the gospel. They long for grace. They long for forgiveness, to be free from shame, freedom from, from having to prove themselves. The Spirit makes, makes known to them their need. And when you're there with them, it, it doesn't matter how far off they are, where they've gone, or how dark it is. The gospel is there to satisfy the lawyer still believed that he could justify himself at the end of this story. If you're familiar with the rich young ruler, he walked away with his head hung low. But the woman at the well, she had a thirst for Jesus. There's no science to this stuff, evangelism. It's not science. And the gospel is not a science there's no playbook or 10 easy steps to any of these things trust the holy spirit to do the work of convicting your neighbor and opening their eyes to see their need for the gospel the tension that gospel ministry might expose in your neighbor isn't despite what they might even say it's not between you and them it's between them and god and you can offer the gospel again and again and again and again without them getting it right that was me people giving the gospel to me over and over again. You can ask questions and not land the plane, right, every single time. You can even fall into the trap of thinking more about yourself in the midst of gospel conversations. And and that's okay because the gospel that you know would justify them if they only believed. It's the same gospel that's already relieved you of your old obsolete need to justify yourself. There's a tension that already exists in the heart of every person that you meet. And gospel ministry will reveal that, and he'll reveal the tension in us as we go about that. And just like I was preaching the gospel to myself over and over in that hotel room, over and over and over again until I believed it and then I forgot it the next day, right? I still have to preach the gospel uh, to myself every day because I forget it. I need mercy, right? I still need mercy. We all need mercy just as much today if you believe the gospel decades ago, all right? And this is the third point, that gospel ministry reveals a mercy that's already there. Uh, sometime early last year, I think, uh, Joe, Mor- Joe Mulberg. Joe, you here today, buddy? You're here, aren't you, somewhere? Maybe, no, yes? Yeah, I'll assume he's here. Um, he's a group leader here. He's giving an announcement. He's my back in Cable. He's a group leader uh, who, is, who is here at the village, and, um, and he's also a guy leading our, our three-week evangelism class, uh, and he'll be up to share about that um, later. But Joe called me, I think it was sometime last year, and, and asked a classic Joe question, uh, if you know what those are. Um, he, he asked, if we preached a whole sermon series on mercy, or, or if we took a year, every week for a year, we preached on mercy, would we, the village, at the end of that year, be more merciful? I can't remember what spurred that question. I don't know where that came from. But I said, no, we just be really legalistic about mercy. That's the nature of the human heart, right, To, to tell us, who we're supposed to be, who, what we're supposed to do. Uh, when we hear that stuff, we start drawing lines and finding a way to put ourselves on, on the other side of it, right? To show that we, we know what mercy is, right? We're merciful, look at us. And them over there, they're not merciful. That's the nature of the human heart that loves to justify itself, which makes it funny that the, the hero of Jesus' story, the parable of the Good Samaritan as we know it, is, is a compassionate guy. He shows mercy, and Jesus' takeaway for the Lord is, go and do likewise. Go be merciful like him. That's, that, that sounds exactly like the thing I said to Joe, like, was a bad idea, right? That would just breed legalism and drive the, the lawyer and, and all of us to try harder, do better, to justify ourselves. That doesn't feel quite right. And so what is, what is going on here? In Jesus' parable, three people pass by a man who had been beaten and robbed and stripped and left for dead on the side of the road. The, the first two people who pass by him are Jews, right? Both of which... Serve in Jerusalem at the temple in some way. One's a priest and one's uh, a Levite. So they, they both have some temple duties, which, uh, and this is important to the story, uh, uh, require them to be ritually clean, pure, undefiled by things like, like wrong food, right? Or, or sickness, or bodily fluids, or dead, or, or maybe half dead people. All right? So uh, this was part of God's law. Th- these guys get a lot of flack. Right, for seeing the, the guy on the side of the road and, and walking and moving to the other side and just kind of walking away. But, but in some ways, they're not total villains. They're, they're simply fulfilling their obligation as temple servants to love the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Even if that means uh, staying ritually clean and, and not helping someone who is in need. The third person, however, is a Samaritan. Right, Somebody who uh, did not love the Lord at all because the, he and, and all the Samaritans, they worshipped a different God uh, altogether, right? They worshipped a different God. They had a, a kind of a twisted, heretical view of the Lord that stretches back into history and Old Testament stuff. Uh, but suffice it to say that Jews and Samaritans they did not get along, right? But, but despite not loving the Lord with all his heart, mind, soul, or strength, he he did love his neighbor, a fellow sojourner on the road. He tended to his wounds. Right? He took him to an inn. He, he paid for any expenses out of his own pocket. And he promised to to come back to pay for future. Uh, expenses, whatever he needed. And so Jesus asks the lawyer, all right, which one of these guys proved to be a neighbor? Now look, less than like two minutes earlier, uh, assuming that Jesus' story was not that much longer, uh, the lawyer said that in order to inherit eternal life, he had to what? He had to love the Lord and love his neighbor. And Jesus agreed but Jesus in telling the story this way and giving him these choices to pick from, right? You got holy rollers who, who won't help anybody uh, and a very helpful heretic. Those are your options, right? Uh, Jesus probably isn't trying to, to, to just give him or us a neat moral lesson to be a good person, to conjure up enough compassion from the depths of, of our own hearts to love people who we don't really like or, or else you're not going to heaven. It's probably what not Jesus is uh, what Jesus is aiming for here. Jesus is pitting the embodiment of the two greatest commandments against one another and saying, "Who are you supposed to be in this story? Pick one." And while it's true that the one who proved to be a better neighbor was the Samaritan, is Jesus telling us that then he he doesn't care about personal holiness or sound doctrine? or rightly knowing the God that we worship, that it it doesn't matter what we believe about God so long as we're really loving and helpful to people. Is that what Jesus is saying in this parable? Or is he uh, actually giving validity to the option of, you know what, like, gosh, for the sake of of loving God too much to get our hands dirty, right, you can not help some people, right? If we judge them not to be clean enough or getting in the way of our relationship with the Lord, right, in some way. If only, if only that guy hadn't been beaten, robbed, and left for half dead, I totally would have helped him, right? <laughs> the way I've heard this parable preached many, many times, the way that uh, kind of Christian has absorbed this parable and the way the lawyer responds so easily and quickly to Jesus' question here, all that it does, it does a really good job of revealing not who we already are, but who we think we should be, right? Not just in this parable, but in God's story. And in some ways, who we don't ever want to be. In this parable or in this story. When our takeaway is that we need to be more like the good Samaritan, right? It reveals that we're all too comfortable seeing ourselves as the hero. And we can have a hard time fathoming that that we are not able to prove ourselves. That whatever it is that that we think we need to be for others or for the Lord. uh, Either to our pride or our despair, right? Uh, Even when Jesus gives us a lose-lose scenario for fulfilling both great commandments without thinking we're like... Yeah, gosh, I really should be more like that helpful heretic. That's a good idea. I'll do that. And we miss the point. We miss the point entirely. We miss what Jesus was trying to reveal to the lawyer. right? What he, what he wants to reveal to all of us this morning, where evangelism ultimately has to go as to who we actually are in the story. Not the good Samaritan. We are not the good Samaritan. We're not the Levite, we're not the priest, we're not the innkeeper, we are the beaten, robbed, stripped person left for dead on the side of the road. And when eternal life is on the line, which is how this whole conversation began, then if the Spirit is kind to us, then he will let us see what sin and Satan have robbed us of. The the spiritual death that we've been left in means that we're in far more dire straits than than even the guy in the parable, right? We're, We're in desperate need not to be seen and passed by. But in our sin and in our shame and our guilt and in our grief, our despair and our pride to be looked upon with compassion and to be shown a great mercy by someone who might breathe life back into our souls. That's who we are. That's who our lawyer is. And this is what Jesus was pressing him to see. But his heart was hung up on the law. It's not who he wanted to be in the story. I was talking with somebody a few weeks ago, and he was, uh, he was saying he felt like he just needed to be different, right? That um, God wasn't happy with, with who he was in certain circumstances and, and relationships. He was revealing uh, what he thought was true about himself to me, and I, I didn't pat him on the back and tell him, hey, it's okay. Um, God likes you the way that you are. I didn't do that. I asked him to tell me what that better version of him was. I might like that guy better. I don't know, right? No, I didn't say him that. I I wanted I wanted to walk with him more closely to the thing that was bringing him condemnation. So tell me, what what is this better version of you like? Tell me what what is he like? What, what's he do? Right. I wanted to reveal the tension that was already there even more. And, and he went on to tell me that he thought that he should always be attentive and, and loving, uh, that, that someone who is reliable and there for other people but not really needy uh, himself. And he went on. And when he was done, I simply repeated back to him what he said. So, uh, so the better version of you is always loving, always reliable, uh, self-sufficient. So the better you is Jesus. <laughs> Without even realizing it, he just... just like all of us slipped into seeing himself right as as the one who needed to be the hero for those people and whatever circumstances he found himself when when he was around them he forgot not only that it's not him that they really need but that he needed the exact same thing that they did right and it's the same thing that our lawyer friend needed, uh, and it's the same thing that we need. Not, not a better version of ourselves, but the mercy of Jesus. All right. So the good news of this parable, the parable of the good Samaritan, is not that, that we can one day prove to be a good Samaritan for our neighbor ourselves. Right. That's not the way that we approach gospel ministry. It's not that we are what our half-dead neighbors need. It's that we need the same thing that our neighbors do. This is the great equalizer in evangelism, right? Uh, And by the grace of God, help has come for us all. Jesus is our clean high priest who has seen us, who's seen every detail of our life, all the sin and all the suffering, and he didn't move to the other side of the road and leave us behind, he drew near to us, and he gave us everything that he had, even his own life, to make us clean, to heal our wounds, to pay for our transgressions, and he he promises to one day return to settle all accounts, and set all things right, I don't care who your neighbor is, right, how different you think you are, how unapproachable you think he is, how horrible you think that she is, right, how far gone you think they might be, you are all in the same ditch on the side of the road, and in, in need of the same Savior, all right? This news gets to wreck us in some way. And it gets to give us a ton of hope. Not just for us. Because if Jesus can save us in this ditch, then he can save anybody. It's like we read in Romans 10 last week. You are, are necessary for the gospel to go forth. You have to preach it. All right? Otherwise, no one's going to hear it or believe it or be saved by it. Right? You've got to do that. But you aren't the gospel. All right? Evangelism isn't about you. Just like how uh, what's true about your neighbor and the Lord is already there. Just like the tension that already exists between your neighbor and the Lord that's already there. There is a mercy that's already there waiting for them and waiting for you. Before you ever start that spiritual conversation. Before you ever ask the first question or feel any tension and his name is Jesus. All right? And so we are all a bunch of beat up lawyers who are wondering how we can prove ourselves today but but are also exhausted from trying to justify ourselves. Who who know that we've not loved the Lord and our neighbor as we ought, but but easily assume that we can be the better version of ourselves that we think we need to be, right? For our neighbors who who want to inherit eternal life but we're left in a ditch left grasping at whatever help might come our way. And some of us know what it is to have been seen in that ditch and given new life. If we want to get good at sharing the gospel with our neighbor, we don't need to pretend we're something that we're not. We don't have to leave the ditch. We don't have to graduate from the inn that we're carried to. We get to be well acquainted, grow in our acquaintance with the mercy that meets us in the mud on the side of the road, right where we are. And we get to know the God who gives us that mercy. So that that then and only then, having received mercy, might we be able to reveal for ourselves, who are, are just as beaten up and exhausted as the rest of us, where mercy really comes from and where it's already waiting for them. Gospel ministry aims to reveal what's already true about our neighbor's need for the Lord's mercy. May we let God this morning reveal his mercy to us in a new way. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for texts and stories that challenge us. God, you're not a God who's quick to flatter us To treat us as if we're somebody that we're really not, or to hope that we could possibly be somebody that we never know that we could be, and, and you know that we never could be, but you actually see us for right where we are. And I pray this morning, God, that if there are people in this room who have not known your mercy, who have not tasted at all the sweetness of the gospel, that they would that the law would become better, that they that their exhaustion, that their hopelessness, that their despair or their pride, that that would seem insignificant and that would taste bitter to them and that they might grasp onto it maybe for the first time the goodness and sweetness and mercy of the gospel and for those of us in this room who have tasted that already who are followers of you would we not pretend that we have to be somewhere else or be something different allow us to rest in the ditch with your mercy may that be enough may you be enough and would you compel us having received that mercy to then go and shout it from the rooftops to our neighbors so grateful for you thank you and it's in Jesus name that we pray amen